Well, good morning again. It's yes. Uh, it's great to have a hymn book that uh, we have such. I mean, just classics. Great is Thy faithfulness, and uh, and that God is raising up others to write songs like that one that we just sang that are so rich and. Uh, it's like he's gifted some to write new lyrics and new tunes that sound really old, you know? I like that. Uh, it's like when they distress something, you know, to make it look older, you know, that, and people want to buy it for a lot of money. And that's kind of what they're, the Gettys and others, uh, Matt Boswell and others have sought to do as well, to bring these rich lyrics um, and, and, and put it in a, in a very singable way. That's what we want in songs. They want, we want them to be singable. This is not just an event where you just come and watch people, you know, up front on the stage sing. This is corporate worship together. And so a good uh, metric to judge a song that should be sung in church is, is it singable, <laughs> right? Can you sing it uh, with other people? And so we're very thankful for those who have put these things, and certainly there's many others outside of this hymn book that are great to sing as well. We, we don't have multiple volumes though, uh, to, uh, so we'll have to introduce others as well, but we're just so thankful for that. It just came to mind, so hope that edified you. <laughs> if you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, where we will be this morning. Someone wants ice cream. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're calling the scoop. <laughs> All right, Luke chapter 8, and we are, Lord willing, going to conclude this chapter, verses 40 to 56. Follow along as I read. Luke 8, 40 to 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith 
has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the living God. There is drama in every text of Scripture. And this story is filled with it because it is really two stories smashed together. It is very unique in the life and ministry of Jesus, at least in the Gospels, to have this kind of story. It, it's the only, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind story where you have a miracle interrupted by another miracle. It's like a miracle sandwich. The story is weaved together. And the way Luke and Matthew and Mark all tell this story, though they have different lengths and emphasis, they all tell it the same way. The man, the father, comes to Jesus, requests his help. Jesus begins the journey, but then there's an interruption, a delay, that ultimately will lead to this young girl's death because of the delay, and yet it will lead to the salvation and healing of this woman with the affliction, only to finally have Jesus come to this man's house and raise his daughter from the dead. And so they all tell it, and, and the way it's told has intensity to it, drama to it. It, it pulls you in to feel the intensity, and, and you're to put yourself into the shoes of this man Jairus were introduced to, and what this might have been like to experience through his eyes as he's desperate for Jesus to come, and then the delay that may have very well frustrated him, though Jesus is healing this woman, but then to see the Lord work to deepen his faith in the Lord Jesus even more. It's an it's a incredibly well-told story, and it is a true story. This is truly incredible. Now, what's also so amazing about this story is how different these women are from one another, and yet the similarities between them as well. One is older, the other is younger. One is from a very prominent family. 
The other, one who is essentially rejected from society because of her condition, a lady who is essentially a Gentile, even though she very well may be Jewish, uh, she is, because of her condition, unclean like a Gentile would be. And that's been her state for 12 years. But though there are differences between them, there are similarities that Luke intentionally highlights for us. One is they're both called daughters, and there's this emphasis. You should see it in the text as you pay attention. Uh, you should notice that this man has a daughter. And then Jesus calls the woman with the affliction daughter. It is the only time Jesus ever refers to someone as daughter in this story. And so affectionately and uh, care, uh, with, with great care speaks to her that way. You also have another connection, and it's the connection of the timing, the timing. We learn in the beginning that this man's daughter, his only daughter, is about 12 years old. She's about 12 years old. But then immediately after that, we find out in the description of this woman that her affliction has been going on for 12 years. And so, this, the moment this woman gave birth to her daughter, this other woman began to get sick. And it persisted the entirety of this little girl's life. And so there's all these connections. I mean, this would make for a great movie <laughs> where you tell the story and, and you're moving back and forth, cam camera scenes, and, 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 and there's just so much drama built into this text. And it is really the culminating stories of a series of stories that Luke has been telling us and organizing for us for this primary purpose to remind us of the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. We have seen that Jesus has authority over disaster, we might say. As he is on the Lake of Galilee, traveling with his disciples, and a, and a violent storm comes upon them, and Jesus speaks to the storm, and it stops and becomes eerily calm. They become even more afraid as a result. But then they land on shore and this naked demon-possessed man starts running after them and falls down at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus, after interacting with him, casts likely thousands of demons out of this man into a herd of pigs. And we see Jesus' authority there over the demonic, over demons and over evil. Jesus then gets on the boat after being evicted from that region of the Gerasenes by the people who are also terrified of Jesus and his authority. They get back on the boat and they go back to the other side, likely Capernaum region, where Jesus has done many miracles already. And he gets off the boat and these two stories take place. And we see Jesus' authority over disease and Jesus' authority over death. And so it culminates this series of stories here that we have been studying. Here's a text that teaches you how to trust the teacher. 
there is danger in our text for the characters to lose hope. This woman, 12 years afflicted, no doubt, very hopeless. This man who is on the verge of losing his daughter, his only daughter, is near hopeless. And yet, the text reminds us of the need to trust the teacher. You can trust Jesus in the face of disease and death. And this text lays out for us that Jesus' authority and his availability entices us to trust him in the face of disease and death. His authority and availability entices us to trust him in the face of disease and death. So we want to see this highlight on faith and the need to trust in Christ. And look at this. The text is quite easy to outline in the sense of knowing the breakpoints because you have part one of Jairus, then the interruption, and then part two of Jairus. It returns back to him. And so it's a sandwich with this one woman in the middle and the interruption. And so to cast it in, in the light of faith, we could look at our first lesson and see the desperation of faith. The desperation of faith in verses 40 and 42. Look again at verse 40. Now when Jesus returned... The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So, of course, we have just caught you up to the background. And Jesus has left this area that doesn't want anything to do with him. Get out of here. And he lands on shore. And these people want everything to do with Jesus. Now, there's mixed motives, no doubt. But they are excited to have Jesus back. And the crowds start forming again. And, and as one person pointed out, notice how polarizing a figure Jesus is. One town is like, we don't want anything to do with you. You get out of here. Here's the, he lands on the other side of the lake. And the people are just flocking to him. Incredible. And Jesus divides people one way or the other. As the crowds begin surrounding Jesus, something unusual happens. Verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Now, ESV leaves this out for whatever reason, but there is the, the Greek word in the beginning of verse 41 that is the word behold. Or it's like, if we were to use it today, look, well, look at this, right? Uh, th that's in there. Because this is something of note. This isn't just anybody coming up to Jesus. This guy's got a name. Now, that's not incredibly common for Luke to include someone's name in a story, and yet here we have his name, Jairus. It, it's, there's a lot of reasons that may be the case, but we just note that this is significant. Maybe he continued to have a role somewhat later into the church and people knew this guy. Oh yeah, Jairus. But he has the name. But he also is identified by his position in the community. He's a ruler of the synagogue. And this is a very prominent position to have. This guy's a local celebrity. And so, this is something of no. Look at this guy. He's, he's famous. And here he is before Jesus. Now, what's also strange about this and amazing is the fact that what we know about rulers of the synagogue and religious leaders up to this point goes totally contrary to the way this man is acting. 
the religious leaders have really rejected Jesus. They're attributing the work of Christ to Satan. And they, they have rejected him. In fact, later in Luke, we will be told about another ruler of a synagogue who gets so indignant with Jesus because he heals a person on a Sabbath. And yet, here's such a contrast. Here's a man who has to get to Jesus. He's desperate to get to Jesus for his need. He's well known. He breaks the mold of what we would expect. And so this, is, <laughs> this warrants the word, behold. Look at this guy. You would not expect this. He's different. No doubt he had heard the message of Jesus and maybe seen uh, some of his miracles. It's possible Jairus was in the synagogue back in Luke 4 when Jesus cast out the demon from the man that morning. It's possible he had heard about the, the boy in Nain who was raised from the dead. And that was, as Luke tells us, Luke likes to add these little details. Luke tells us that that mother, that was her only son. And Luke is the only one to tell us that this is Jairus' only daughter. So here you have now, not only in that story, a mother who has an only son. This is a story, Luke tells us, where you have a man with an only daughter. And so Luke is highlighting these things for us. And so this man knows about Jesus. Now, it was not an easy feat to get close to Jesus. And the crowd's pressing in. So I don't know, there may have been some cutting in line here. Uh, there may have been some pushing, some shoving. I don't know if you ever tried to get through a crowd that's been really, you know, massive uh, to get somewhere. This man is determined. There is no stopping this man. He is desperate. He is going to get there. And so he makes his way forward. Hey, you cut in line, <laughs> right? And, and he doesn't care. He's getting to Jesus. And he finally gets to him and he falls before his feet. And again, a shocking thing. Here's this synagogue ruler and he's bowing before Jesus. I mean, we haven't seen anything like this. A shocking sign of humility from such a man. He recognizes Jesus' authority. And that's the whole point of this, these four stories. He gets it. Now, what does he want? He wants Jesus to come to his house. This is an urgent matter. Verse 42, For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. He, she is at the point of death. And so he, he leaves her bedside. He leaves the girl, his daughter, with her mother, and he, he rushes to Jesus. He gets to him. He bows before him. He begs him to come to his home. And this is his only daughter. And she's 12 years old. This man is desperate. Desperate. I have a little girl who's about to be 12 years old this week. So this story is just a precious story to me this week in God's providence. How you can't, you can't make these things up, right? Uh, here's, uh, and so here is his precious little girl. But consider how, in this story, how indiscriminate death can be, that death is. It comes to the rich and the poor. It comes to the young and the old. 
You cannot insulate yourself from death in this fallen world. J.C. Ryle says this, death is indeed a cruel enemy. He makes no distinction in his attacks. He comes to the rich man's hall as well as to the poor man's cottage. He does not spare the young, the strong, and the beautiful any more than the old, the infirm, and the gray-haired. Not all the gold in Australia, nor all the skill of doctors can keep the hand of death from our bodies in the day of his power. When the appointed hour comes and God permits him to to smite, our worldly schemes must be broken off and our darlings must be taken away and buried out of our sight. Sobering words, but words we must face up to and realities we must face up to. His father is facing the terrible, terrifying prospect of losing his little girl. And so there's urgency here. There's desperation. By doing this, likely he forfeits socially his position. It's hard to imagine this guy can remain in his position with the way politically the synagogue is going, the the religious leaders are going against Jesus, and him to bow down before Jesus and ask him to come to his house like this, humbling himself, It's likely this guy, his career, so to speak, is over by doing this. He's lost his standing. But he cares not. There is something far more desperate for him. He must get to Jesus. Have you ever had a time in your life like this where you just had to have Christ? It just, everything else just seemed to fade. And it was this reality that I have to, I have to be right with Christ. I have to have Christ. Everything else needs to take a a secondary position while I figure this out, while I pursue Christ, while while I get to Christ. I must get to him. Everything else paling. Something in your life that brought clarity to life to say, this is what really matters. And God is gracious to bring those things sometimes in our life. Sometimes he has to bring something more dramatic into some lives than others. But what a grace it is to cause someone to be desperate for Christ. This man has come to a time of desperation. You know, Jeremiah 29, 13 has a great statement there. It says, you know, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And this man has, has come seeking Jesus. What you have to love about this story, so many little nuggets here, is look at Jesus' availability, his willingness to go with this man. I mean, there's just tons of people crowding in. And here Jesus sees something in this man and his desperation, he's like, okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go to your house right now. And he just goes. He just leaves. He's got all these people. And the man says, come, my daughter, she's gonna die. And he just goes. He just goes. You have to love that about our Lord. Never too busy to be interrupted. And that will bear itself out even more as our story continues. But look how compassionate he is. This is God's nature seen so clearly in our Lord. This man presents his need to Jesus and Jesus goes. So they head towards his home. And oh, the relief this must have been for this man, that Jesus, who he's seen as authority before, he's now coming with him. He's coming to the house. There's hope, 
restored to some degree. But before long, there's an interruption. There's a delay, a traffic jam. And here we consider our next lesson on faith. Not only do we see the desperation of faith, but the direction of faith. The direction of faith. Look at the middle of verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. This has become a common scene. We've gotten used to this. The crowds pressing in on Jesus, making it hard for him to make much progress. The word press is the same word Luke uses in chapter 8, verse 14, referring to the weeds that were choking out the seed, that were, you know, flowers were growing up and it just choked, choked it out. It's like Jesus is getting choked out here in the crowd. He's getting crushed by the crowd. It's a, it's a very intense word. This is a pedestrian pileup. And we encounter this interruption. This delay then adds to the drama of what's happening here. There is an urgency. You've got to get to this guy's house. But now there's this something introduces. And Luke takes a, a good bit of time to introduce us to this next figure, this next character, this woman. Verse 43. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Here's a woman who is known not by her name, but by her condition. Known by her uncleanness. She's been afflicted with this discharge of blood now for 12 years. And this would drain her life, her energy, but even more, this gynecological issue had rendered her ceremonially unclean for over a decade of her life. And as we've pointed out, as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been afflicted in this way. If you go back to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 15, we, we hear how this woman's condition is so severe socially because of the law of Moses. Leviticus 15, verse 25, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, for all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Uh, in this section of Leviticus, God is showing his people through the system, the sacrificial system, uh, he gives them these laws that some things in life render you ceremonially unclean. And these are areas of, some of them are very personal matters, private matters. And it shows in one sense that God is concerned about every area of your life. Uh, and God, there's no areas off limits that God isn't concerned about. And, and also it shows us that there are things in your life that are outside of your control that can render you ceremonially unclean. And so it just ratchets up that much more the need for atonement, for cleansing that God would provide. And these are lessons for Israel to show them the need for cleansing. 
And so this uncleanness may, though no fault of her own, it did nevertheless socially isolate her for all of these years. Like we said, she is effectively a Gentile because she is unclean. She, she cannot have interaction with normal society. And you think, what would this be like? Okay, well, let's just rewind the tape a little bit back to 2020. Do you remember a little bit of social isolation? Now, you know, in South Georgia, y'all had it better than most, okay? You know, but everyone had some degree of social isolation. And uh, it was challenging and it was difficult. So just remember back on that, that season in our recent history. But, you know, two weeks to slow the spread, so to speak, became 12 years for this woman. I mean, imagine this just continues to go on. I mean, maybe you know some people uh, in some parts of our country who are still acting like it's 2020, but I mean, that's pretty rare. But this woman, that is her condition. She can't go to synagogue. She can't go to supper with anyone. She can't have anyone to her home. She can't go to the store. Uh, She hasn't been able to worship with God's people. I mean, her life is just totally cut off from society. She's like a leper. It's really, they're the same. She is like a leper. She's probably not been hugged for 12 years. This has been her, her life. But in addition to that, she spent all her resources trying to get better. Luke tells us there's no cure. Mark, in Mark 5, uh, he goes into a little bit more detail on this, and he just, he just kind of goes off on the physicians. You know, she just spent everything she had on the physicians, and she didn't, not only did she not grow better, but she grew worse by the physicians. And Luke is a physician, he kind of leaves some of that out. Uh, maybe Mark is razzing Luke a little. I don't, we don't know. But um, listen to some of the remedies that some ancients have kind of dug up here about what some things that may have been prescribed for such conditions. William Lane, in his commentary on Mark, says this, quote, One remedy consisted of drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. Another treatment consisted of a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine administered with the summons, quote, arise out of your flow of blood. Other physicians prescribed sudden shock or the carrying of the ash on an ostrich's egg in a certain cloth. What does that mean look like? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, this is, there was just no cure for things during these days. She's become desperate and nearly hopeless. Long-term sickness and disease can certainly have that effect. Really, her only hope, truly, is Jesus. She realized there's nothing else. Look at verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She's become convinced. She's convinced herself. The other gospels kind of bring this out a little bit more. The verb tense they choose says that she was like continually saying to herself, if I can just touch his garment, if I can just touch his garment, if I can just touch his garment, just convincing herself that this would make her well. Her concern for making others unclean is gone. 
right? She just pushes through this crowd. And likely to do this, she probably had to disguise herself in some way. And she couldn't come from the front because maybe, you know, the disciples act somewhat like the secret service and they're kind of pushing people out of the way as Jesus is coming. And so she comes up from behind and makes her way. And finally she gets uh, in arm's length of Jesus and she's there and she reaches out and she, she grasps hold of the tassel. And so what is this? What is this? Well, if you go back to Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22, you learn that uh, Jewish men were to have this kind of, uh, these four tassels on the edges of their garment as a reminder of the law of God and to keep the law of God. And so it's, it's highly likely Jesus is wearing such a garment and there's these just little flowing tassels coming off. And it, the idea of touch is maybe not the best. We just think it's like a quick little touch. The idea is that she grasped hold of it. She just said she grabbed it. And that's what she does. She grabs it. And Luke uses the word immediately. Immediately. He's going to use this for the other daughter as well. But immediately. And one touch brings an instantaneous end to 12 years of hopelessness. As one writer says, she's instantly aware she's free. I can only imagine as she just kind of lets go and the crowd keeps moving forward. Jesus is kind of leaving her and a few steps and she just, tears just start running down her face. I mean, just relief. After so long, she knows she's different. She's changed. Think about this on a, uh, on a level broader than just physical suffering. And I think there's just a lesson here for us as well about the way people go about seeking relief in their life from all kinds of things, going just about everywhere and, and trying all kinds of things, whether it be different religions, different psychologists, different fads, different things to try and deal with what is affecting them, what is afflicting them. And they can't find help. In fact, in many cases, rather than growing better, they grow worse still. It's exacerbated. And sometimes the advice they're given is just so terrible. It just drives them into deeper despair until they hear the gospel and they hear about Christ And God works in their heart and they exercise faith in Christ. And immediately, there's change. Something's different. This man is different. This man has changed me. And no doubt, all of us know, uh, there is that immediate change, realization, I'm right with God. I'm forgiven. I'm justified. And, And yet, we have areas where we still grow in. But it is not uncommon for there to be some just dramatic change in a believer's life when they finally give up the the seeking from other areas and and come to trust in Christ, leaning their weight upon him. And that's what this woman has done and she finds immediate change. Look at verse 45 though. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? (laughs) Jesus stops abruptly and he asks, who touched me? And notice the response to this question. First, 
the people around Jesus who are suffocating him start to deny it. I mean, that's funny. It wasn't me, Jesus. I didn't touch you. You know, it's like when I ask him, hey, who, who, who left this out? It wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Like, nobody did it. <laughs> but all these people are there and they're crushing in on him. I, I didn't, they're like afraid they're going to get in trouble. You know, but they're all just a minute ago pressing in. But then you got to love Peter, right? As one person said, he, he took his foot out of his mouth to put the other one in. <laughs> you know, it's like to switch feet. And he goes, basically, really? Uh, Jesus, everyone is touching you. What do you mean who touched me? That guy, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy, that girl. You know, it's like, who, what a question. And Peter actually gets to be here for both of these. It's actually really interesting. He's front row seat to this, but also to the, to the miracle coming. Verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. What an, what an interesting statement. Now, don't think of Jesus like a lithium battery that, that you got to plug in and charge back up, right, after the day. That's not the idea. Power flows from him. He's the source of power. He is divine. He's God. But he, he knows that he has healed this woman, and he knows there has been, though many hands have been upon him, he has sensed a, a, a hand of faith, and this woman has been healed. I think it's probably best to view what Jesus is doing, not as just uh, ignorance, but really a opportunity for this woman to present herself. Uh, for him to make this known to the crowd because she does not want to be known. She wants to slink away. She, she wants to be healed and then slink away and we don't know what, but she does not want to be exposed. But she realizes that Jesus knows it was her. He knows it was her. And so she comes, she comes trembling before before him. Verse 47, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. So Jesus knows. It was, she knows that Jesus knows. <laughs> and so she comes forth trembling. Once again, once it, there's this trembling idea. It happens in each time. The disciples, the storm is calm. Then they're trembling even more. The, the, man is ca- the demons are cast out. The people start to tremble. This woman is healed, and she starts to tremble. But she trembles, and that's not the focus. The focus is that she fell down before him and she declared. She declared in the presence of everyone what Jesus had just done, how she was unclean, and now that she is clean. Everyone's, I don't know, maybe people are going like, now I'm unclean. Like, she just walked right by me. Uh, And notice that Jesus does not contract uncleanness, just like when he healed the leper earlier, but he transmits his cleanness to her and transforms her. Just like when Jesus touches this, this little girl's dead body, that does not defile him, which would do that for anyone else, but rather he, his cleanness, his life passes into her. It works opposite. It overrides the system. Uh, Jesus does that. He overrides the system because he rules the system. He made the system. And so she comes forth and she, she tells the story. She was timid, but now she testifies. Jesus embarrassed her 
for her benefit. She did not want to be in front of everyone to tell this. But what it did was it allowed everyone to know that she was no longer unclean. She could enter back into society. She could have proof to everyone that she could be back. That's a grace to her. That was such a kindness. It also brought glory to Christ before all these people. We should remember here, we should never be ashamed to give testimony about what Christ has done in our lives for the selfish fear of just, ah, I don't want to you know, be in front of people or whatever. Um, especially, you know, the most obvious example is baptism, but, but you're not really talking about you. You're talking about what God has done in your life, what God has done for you. And of course, even beyond that, just standing up for Christ and saying what God has done in your life. Here's this woman, she's timid. She doesn't want to do that. Oh, it's embarrassing. My story, uh, this was my issue. And yet Jesus has worked in my life. And yet, he gives her the grace of being able to do that and bring glory. But it does one other thing. It's an incredible gift that Jesus gives to her by exposing her, so to speak, and making her come forward. Look at verse 48. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So much here. He calls her daughter. What, a, what an incredible statement. The only time, such a tender word. She's a daughter of the king. She's a child of God. He says, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. This woman has not only been cleansed physically, she's been saved spiritually. It wasn't something magical about Jesus' garment. It was the object of her faith, the directionality of her faith, which saved her. Your faith has saved you. Why? Because the direction of her faith was upon Christ, who has all power. And she looked at him, she said, I know this man can heal me. I know this man can save me. He can deliver me. He can make me clean. This is really the same kind of language Jesus used for the woman who brought the ointment upon Jesus' feet in verse 50 of chapter seven. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Same thing. And it's not go with peace, though that likely would happen. It's go in peace. Go in the status of peace with God. You are reconciled to God. Therefore, Having faith in Christ, we have been justified and we have peace with God. Romans 5 tells us, we believe in Christ, we're declared righteous, and we have peace with God, objective peace. So go, you are a child of the king. You have peace with God. What a gift. What an assurance to her faith now going forward for Jesus to say these words. He wanted to give her something precious. So faith was the issue here. Faith in Christ was the issue, the direction of it. Jesus then tells her to go. She has peace. It is looking to Christ in faith that saves and brings peace with God. Do you have peace with God right now? Are you in the state, the status of peace? That is the precondition for experiencing the ongoing just peace of God in our lives as things come. This is what faith in Christ brings, the direction of faith. Now, imagine you're Jairus while all this is happening. This woman touches, everything stops. You're like, come on, 
What are we going? What are we doing? What's happening here? Why are you stop? Then Jesus asks the question, who touched me? And you're like, are you kidding me? What? What? what it, what's happening? We don't know his words. We're putting things into his mind. But you can just, you're human. You know. Why is he taking so long? Why is he stopping? What is happening? Maybe hope is starting to fade. Yeah, Jesus is not anxious or hurried in the slightest. This is the beauty of this true story. It is one miracle caught up in the midst of another miracle. And so we see our third lesson here, the dependence of faith. The dependence of faith. Look at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. The delay has led to the death of his daughter. Hope seems lost. J.C. Rowell again says, such tidings as these are the bitterest cups which we have to drink in this world. Nothing cuts so deeply into man's heart as to part with beloved ones and lay them in the grave. Few griefs so crushing and heavy as the grief of a parent over an only child. Life is full of delays, of interruptions. Jesus delays, or will delay, in the story of Lazarus as well, intentionally. And then Lazarus dies. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Yet in both stories, after bringing them back, the result is greater glory for Christ and greater depth of faith in Christ by those involved. And that's what we see here as well. Here's the truth that we all must regularly be reminded of, that we forget, all of us, God's timing is perfect and he is good. Sure, surely though, to those suffering, God may often seem slow, slow. But his timing is perfect. His plan is perfect. And here's the profound lesson that we see in our story. Take note of the words of these messengers. Here is a lesson on what not to say to those who are in this kind of situation. There seems to be kind of a harshness or a bluntness in their immediate statement. Your daughter's dead. But then they proceed to give the worst possible advice you could give to someone in this situation of deepest grief. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. That's the worst advice you could give someone. Don't trouble Jesus anymore. What terrible advice. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. You are never a trouble to the teacher. This is never the right response to our deepest sorrows. <laughs> Ryle says this, faith in Christ's love and power is the best remedy in time of trouble. Go ahead, trouble the teacher. He wants to be troubled. They, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't think, maybe they even thought initially this was a fool's errand for Jairus to go on. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered them. Jesus overhears it. He's not even going to dignify it. He just hears it and he says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. 
Do you need to hear those words today? Don't fear. Only believe. Just trust. Trust Christ. Trust his goodness. Trust his timing. Isaiah chapter 26, a very dear verse. 26 verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In chapter 28 verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. He's called to depend upon Christ, to continue to persevere in his trust in Christ. He believed enough to come to Jesus initially. Now he's called to continue to believe in this trial. And look at verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. The funeral has already begun. Very different than our funerals in many ways. Loud, discordant, professional weepers and mourners, hired. And here's the inner circle, Peter, John, and James, and they're allowed to go in. This is going to be a private miracle. Whereas Jesus made the woman testify publicly, here he makes this very private. And he has the parents come in, and it's Jesus and these three disciples. Look at verse 52. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Notice what Jesus does here. We could say it like this. Jesus redefines death. Jesus redefines death here. How does he do that? He says, she's not dead, but she is sleeping. Now, Jesus knows she's dead. They laugh at him because they, they're like, what are you talking about? We know she's dead. You don't call the, the mourners, the professional mourners to come when someone's almost dead. You call them when they're dead. And, and they've come and they're, they're beginning the funeral. And it's so clear that she's dead. But Jesus is not ignorant of that. He's redefining death here. By likening it to sleep, he shows that death is only temporary. It is not the end. And this becomes this affectionate way, or maybe affection is not the right word, but, but this delicate and precious way to refer to the death of believers as being asleep. We're asleep in the Lord, and we will awake when he calls us out of that sleep. It just occurs throughout the New Testament after this. They are asleep, believers are, because they will awake in life in the resurrection. Jesus then, verse 54, taking her by the hand, called out, saying, child, arise. Now Luke translates this for us. He has a, a broader audience. Mark 5.41 gives us the actual words that he spoke in Aramaic, talithakum, and it's just this very like, gentle, affectionate little girl, you know, awake. And it's, it's the imagery of like a father who just comes to his daughter and who's sleeping and just awakens her from a nap. He just wakes her up, grabs her by the hand. And there immediately she wakes up. There's no fanfare like Elijah and Elisha when they bring people back. It's just so gentle. Talitha Kuhn, child, Arise. She gets up, and Jesus is so practical. Get her a sandwich. 
you know, get her a falafel, whatever. You know. uh, and, and, you know, Jesus is going to eat after his resurrection to prove that he really is alive, that he's not a spirit, he's not a phantom, he's not a ghost. He wants to do that, but also very practically feed her. And she does. And her parents, verse 58, 56, were amazed. I mean, this is, they are, they're just blown away. Their daughter's back. Their precious daughter. And then he charges them to say nothing. What? I mean, just imagine, you're Peter, John, and James, and you're trying to leave this place. They're laughing at Jesus, close the door. It's just them in the room. He brings her back. The parents, overwhelmed, and they're just enjoying their daughter. Overwhelmed, and Jesus says, all right, don't tell anyone. See you guys. <laughs> you know, like, and, and Peter and James, and they're walking out, and everyone's kind of looking at them like, do we start again? Like, can we start, Jesus is leaving, can we start the funeral again? And Peter's like, oh man, they have no idea. Like, don't say anything. And they're just leaving, and they just, you know, they just get out of there. Uh, Live to fight another day, and what is going on here? And it, it's hard to be definitive, but notice the contrast, right? Jesus is in the region of the Gerasenes, a Gentile area, and this man's cleansing all these demons, dr driven out, and he says, go tell everyone, declare this, you're a missionary. And then he says, from raising the dead, don't tell anyone. It's likely, likely, that there's just so many Jewish overtones of the expectations of the Messiah. There's a lot of confusion going on. And I think Jesus, in a way, is for now concealing this to not make us big. But Matthew, when he ends the story, he just goes, and everyone found out about this. You know, he's just like, yep, they all told about it. You know, it's like, so it, get, it gets out there. But there's a sense of not pre prematurely moving the timetable up because of misconceptions about Jesus. Now, couple more points to make here as we bring this to a conclusion. What Jesus has done for this little girl is what he will do for every single believer in Christ. This is a preview. This is a trailer of coming attractions. For in the future, Jesus will say to every believer, child, arise. And immediately, in the twinkling of an eye, they will be raised bodily from the grave. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do, have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The king has power and authority over the king of terrors. Revelation 1, 
17 and 18, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. As a believer in Christ, you will die, but it will only be sleep. Jesus will do the same that he did for this daughter. He will raise you up in the resurrection There's another point of application I think is worthy to make. It seems reasonable that this 12-year-old girl had trusted in Christ as well. And so it's good to just ask young people, do you know the Lord? Have you trusted in Christ? Here's a 12-year-old girl who has likely come to know the Lord. You don't have to wait to become an adult to follow Christ, to trust in Christ. Trust him now. Do you know him to be good? Do you know him to be strong? Do you know him to be perfect and holy? Do you know him to be a savior of those who have sinned? Do you know yourself to have sinned against him? Do you know that you deserve God's judgment for your sin because God is holy? Do you know that he raised from the dead so that he can raise you from the dead, so that he can put you right with God, so that you can be right with God, you can be forgiven? Trust him. Trust him so that you can continue to grow in that trust through your life. He is so good. You've seen it this morning. For all of us, we need this message. Whether young or old, our faith needs to be in the object of Christ Jesus. Dale Ralph Davis writes this, Jesus may seem most severe when he is doing us much good. Jesus may seem most severe when he is doing us much good. William Cooper wrote this line in a hymn, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. For both the woman and Jairus, this was a strange way of acting. Jesus called her out, embarrassing her, but it was only to give her assurance. Jesus delays to disappoint leading to death, but only to display his glory even more. Jesus may lead us or delay for us in order to drive us closer to him, make us go deeper with him in trust in our walk with him. Is this not the story of the world of history? That God delays, that we might go deeper with him, that others might depend upon him as well, so that in the end, we look back after we've all heard arise, child, and we worship him for the great story that he has written with all the drama of redemption weaved in, seeing the details. This, is, this story is just a glimpse of the weaving of stories together that all give praise and glory to the one who has all authority. It's a snapshot of all of history and how all of history is a, a host of stories that weave together of how people have been brought to Christ to trust in him, to be raised up on the last day, to give him glory forever in a world that is his kingdom and that is restored back to Eden. This is the story. This is Christ. He is our hope in both life and in death. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Lord Jesus, how precious he is to us. What a story you're writing. What a story you have written and continue to write 
as we see just a glimpse of your glory in this story, may it give us confidence in our stories and in the big story that you are writing, all of it true, all of it for your glory, and yet punctuated with pain, punctuated with perplexity at your timing, and yet, Lord, we pray that it would be punctuated in our life with persevering faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.